Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. But it's, it's notable that 80% of the overshoots are over the target at that point. Because we inherited a bunch of formulas from the Labour Party that shoved all the funding into deprived urban areas. Um, and now inflation is hitting double digits. The stock market is doing extremely well, which means to me jobs. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. Well, we're getting used to raises in interest rates now, and there are more to come as central banks try hard to slow down the rate of inflation all over the world, just about. But is it working for them? And why do some, most notably the Bank of Japan, refuse to play ball? Do they know something that we don't know? In short, will central banks the world over achieve their aims? Will there be unnecessary suffering as a result? Or could it all just be a big fail that could see confidence in central banks squash forever? That's all this week on the Debunking Economics podcast. So uh, central banks are worried about wage inflation. Uh, that is their argument for why they need to slow down demand in the economy. And the easiest way to cut off demand is to cut off your supply of money. So make you lose your job seems to be the theory. But it's not working. So a couple of weeks ago, the payroll numbers from the United States showed that rather than a fall in the number of people working last month, half a million extra people found themselves a job. On the result of that, markets went a bit crazy on the expectation that the Fed is going to keep on lifting interest rates even further than anticipated till people start losing their jobs. God damn it. Mm -hmm. So, Steve, I mean, does it make sense what the Fed and the other reserve banks are are trying to do? No, it doesn't make sense. Is is that why it's not working then? I mean, in, in, in some ways, this is revenge of reality on economic theory, because if any institutions in society are dominated by mainstream economists, it's central banks. If you want to get a job as a central bank, in a central bank, you've almost got to have an economics degree. And you look at the research divisions and and the modelling group that then tells them what they're uh, policy setting should be. They're all there. There are a handful of non-neoclassical economists who get in there. I'm, I'm quite aware of. I've met quite a few of them in different central Do, are banks. They, are they the ones cleaning the toilets and uh, <laughs> polishing the mirror? They're doing uh, the unusual stuff. They're doing stock flow consistent modelling rather than just DSGE modelling. But if you meet, meet the mob who do the mainstream economic stuff, they really believed that they knew how the economy operated. They had the accurate model, <clears throat> and therefore their model could let them manage the economy. Mm. Now, I've, I've, I won't take any, any names of people I can quote on this front from central banks, but back at 2007, um, p- p- economists who were doing this stuff thought they'd got the economy all worked out. Okay? They knew exactly how it was managed, and, and their models could then control the economy. And then 2008 I was going to say, 2007 is an interesting year, given what followed on. They had no idea it was coming. Mm. Their models gave them no indication whatsoever that a financial crisis was coming. 
Just as they had no idea that we were going to face the inflation that we've seen yeah, over the yeah. last year. And so their models, Total are, surprise. their models are incomplete and wrong, mm. but elaborate enough to fool them. Yeah. So what you've now got is a, a, a huge... Uh, I mean, when you, when you look back at where this all came from, you've got to take it back to the uh, 1970s. First of all, Milton Friedman, uh, but then after Milton Friedman, who was he was definitely a left-wing. Milton Friedman was left wing. Was he? Yeah, if you read he people like Thomas well. Sargent. Okay. <laughs> uh, so the the problem with Milton Friedman's argument was, from the point of view of neoclassical, because he was all for those left wing ideas like small government and yeah, uh, small right. government and private militias, police forces, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm. His son reckons he was a left winger, which is quite amusing. Wow. Anything but. But but what do you? What you had was a group of economists who came along who made Milton look like a radical. And the reason that happened was Milton Friedman's argument was that inflation is caused by the government creating too much money. Um, and the uh, and so what happens is the government helicopter, that's whether he literally was one who came up with the idea of helicopter money, Heli- the helicopter, which in the vision, the, the, the analogy for the helicopter was the central bank. Mm. Okay? Because... You've got a market economy, which is run by you know, all the usual capitalist components, and the central bank is independent of the system. So it can fly over the top and exogenously drop money into the economy. That's where the analogy came from. And But he said, well, when that happens is this money falls on the ground. You have 1,000 – I'm just literally quoting the article now. You've got 1,000 $1 bills, which give you the economy. That turns over 12 times a year, which is a crazy mm. velocity of money figure, but that's what he used. Try one so or so, 0.8 or whatever. Well, so yeah, these yeah. days it is, yeah, yeah. far, far lower. Um, but with that hypothetical 12 times per year, the money turning over, then you have a GDP of 12,000 per year. Uh, and then the helicopter flies over the top and drops notes out and everybody gathers the notes and then spends. And suddenly they've got £2,000, which if supports an income of $24,000 a year. And everybody think, well, that's a huge increase in their, in their real income. So they work harder, uh, which then drives down... Uh, productivity because of diminishing marginal productivity. Okay, <laughs> this is all the parts of the way the mind fits together, and that causes your pro- your price per unit goes up. You have inflation. The inflation then erodes the value back to the one thousand. The same as the two thousand pounds are now worth what one thousand were beforehand, and you go back to the pre-intervention uh, equilibrium. Now that was regarded as uh, that was his argument he gave in favour of. Are using interest rates in particular to reduce the demand for money and effectively destroy money. Okay, so he—that was his argument. That was too radical for people like Sargent and Lucas who came after him because it implied if the government was willing to tolerate accelerating inflation, then it could actually drive the unemployment rate below the equilibrium level. Now, this is the way they interpreted what happened during the Great Depression, when, of course, the equilibrium rate of unemployment was 25%. It's nonsense, Mm. but that's what took over. So Milton was regarded as too radical. And this whole bunch of Lucas and Sargent and Rapping and Wallace and so on came along and and made neoclassical theory even more conservative than it was beforehand. But part of it involved the central bank controlling the interest rate. So and that's that's what's led all these guys into the trap they're in now. Right. And that trap, I mean, has people sitting in pubs trying to figure out what the Bank of England and other central banks are doing, which to the layperson would say, well, we've all got a bit more money than we had, or generally the population's mm. got more money because we've, you know, because we got a bit more during the pandemic and mm. were able, and had less 
to spend. We, you know, went, went forwent a, a couple of years of going off on foreign holidays. So we've yeah. got that money which we're wanting to spend now. Uh, and uh, and there's, it's still hard to buy stuff. So mm. the price of stuff has gone up. The price of food, for example, has 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 gone up, uh, and that is in part because of the war. Obviously, mm-hmm. the fact yeah. that you know a lot of it was coming from from Eastern Europe and can't get here anymore. So all of that's added to inflation. So why the hell is the Bank of England making life worse for us by also pushing up our mortgage rates? Yeah, because so according to their theory, the the cause of inflation is wage growth exceeding the rate of uh, growth of of the economy in nominal terms, and therefore their control is to put up the interest rate because this thing called the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment, yeah. uh, which they believe they can control Nehru by varying the interest rate twice as fast as the rate of inflation changes. So if the inflation rate goes up from 2% to 3%, you put your interest rates up from, from 1% to, to 4%, and you'll then put the pressure on and, and reduce uh, wage demands, which are obviously what's caused the use of inflation. Yeah. Only there's one problem. They obviously haven't. No, well, it, it hasn't happened at all, has it? But also, I mean, and the, yeah, so the Nehru is the, what is it, non-accelerating... Inflation rate of unemployment. So hence, you've got, we've got to have people lose jobs. Uh, yeah, it, it's, and, it's another one of these will-o'-the-wisps, these fairies invented by neoclassical economists, which don't actually exist, but which occupies the minds of economists, particularly in central banks. So their, their model tells them that if the inflation is happening, they, all they have to do is put up the rate of uh, interest rates faster than the rate of inflation is changing, and that will reverse the direction. And it all feeds through what they call the Phillips curve, uh, which is blaming a great man. We've talked about uh, Phillips mm. here before on the um, on the um, the podcast. And I, I had a look at uh, Claudia Sam as a a mainstream economist who's a critic of the mainstream to some extent as well, and you know, quite a useful uh, contributor to the academic debate in general. But she had a paper coming out and criticising central banks and this thing that's abolished the Phillips curve in a paper. And I checked out the paper. Do you think there was a reference to Phillips in the paper? Okay. So they, <laughs> I'm guessing not. They haven't read the damn thing. Yeah. So, they, 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 so their They've idea just taken the, they take their idea is just this snapshot that it's, it's a handy... snapshot without yeah. seeing what the foundations were. Yeah. But the, the, the Phillips curve they're talking about is part of this whole idea that the interest rate can control the economy. Mm. So when they talk about abolishing the Phillips curve, what she should be talking about is abolishing the mindset of believing you can... You can manage the economy just by varying the rate of interest. That's what's built into these dynamic stochastic general equilibrium models that are produced by all these central banks. That's what they think they're managing the economy with. They're completely ignoring the private financial sector. They're completely lowering the level of private debt and credit creation and so on. Mm. And they have a model where the inflation can only be caused by wage changes rather than being caused by the other factors, which include a markup on the cost of production. And that is, Mm. if you wanted to identify the two factors that have caused the inflation this time round. It's an increase in the markup, which was, uh, which is feasible because of the amount of money the government created during the, the COVID uh, pandemic, yeah. which, which that money, if you say, turns Good old-fashioned people... profiteering, like, for example, yeah, like, of, like Shell, yeah. for example, yeah. recording record profits as well because yeah, they, yeah. they can because was, yeah, we it, need the energy. So you, you, this is why I think the Koleski's approach to understanding inflation is far, far wiser than the nonsense you see in neoclassical models. Instead, it comes down to three factors, the markup, the, the wage level, and the productivity per worker. Mm. Now, what you've had with COVID and with... Uh, the, the, uh, with the war, the mm. war, and so a reduction in the productivity per worker that's causing your prices to rise. You've also had markups rising because 
what determines markup in Koleski's thinking is the perceived level of competition. And with that perception comes through manufacturers saying, how easy is it to flog the goods I've got? Okay, so you're looking inside your own market. And if you can easily flog stuff, you think, oh, there's not much competition. I can put my markup up. Yeah. Now, they all do it. But there is less competition as well. So if you go into, if you go into supermarkets, for mm. example, there's less choice now. They, they just are stocking less brands. Mm. So, I mean, there is less competition happening. If you want to buy a particular item, you probably choose from one brand, whereas before... I've been through that buying a computer in the last couple of yeah, days. Yeah, less choice. Therefore, uh, yeah. there, so there is less competition. So, well, but that, 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 so the combination, the, the perception of less competition because of largely the, money, the government money creation during COVID, hmm. uh, productivity fit during COVID as well, workers are the third factor and they've gone down. Yeah. Now, the whole f- focus of the banks is on... The workers are the cause. Well, they're well, not. Statistically, the rate of wage growth is far below the rate of inflation. Yeah, well, that's going to be a point. It is too surely it would have to be higher than inflation to cause that spiral. But also, I mean, even if they did believe that, I mean, year-on-year wage growth in the U.S. was 5.3% last year. Mm. Uh, it was a lot more early in the year last year mm. when it got to 11.4%. So by the end of the year, it was down to 53 from having been 11.4%. And yet they're worried about a wage spiral. I mean, but it's going down. But they're still pushing interest rates up. What are they waiting for? Well, they're going to break the system. And this is what happens when, if you look back at Vok, uh, the, 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 there is a case of you know, generals fighting the last war and all this as well. So most of the economists who wrote the literature, which is now being used by the by the kids who are running central banks these days, mm. like me being an old 70-year-old bloke and being ageist about it, but sorry, you kids, uh, given what you've been taught by, um, that the battle that they fought was the Vokler inflation. Now, Vokler was following Milton Friedman's ideas, which basically said it's people's expectations of inflation which determine the rate of inflation. So if you believe prices are going to go up by 10% per annum, you put your prices up by 10% per annum. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was Friedman's argument. Now, so the argument that he put was as soon as you break the expectations, you'll fall back to equilibrium again and really quickly with only a small amount of pain. That was garbage, what actually happened was we call the Vokler recession mm. because Vokler put rates up, interest rate from not the other order of 3 and 4% to 17%. Commercial rates hit 22%. That just creamed uh, people's financial calculations, a huge drop in investment, huge drop in spending, a huge recession. That broke the back of the trade union movement. Okay, and that's what beat the inflation last time round. Now, I know from my dealings at the time with the Australian Trade Union movement, a guy called Laurie Carmichael, you might, I remember having a conversation with Laurie once, and he's saying, look, we tried high wage rises during the early 70s, and it all got eaten up by inflation. So we realised the wage rises in money terms alone don't work because capitalists can put up their prices to match as well. So we're better off getting out, working out a, a, a pact between unions and management about sharing the rate of growth of the economy fairly rather than trying to get it by competitive wage rises, et cetera, et cetera. So the, you broke the back of the trade union movement. It was wage rises which were causing the high inflation. In the but 70s. not any, not right, now. Not now. Okay. Yeah. But they're using they're using what worked in the seventies for the inflation of the twenty twenties. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And and that gets back to you know that idea that uh, that unions should you know for example have a place on the board. You know yeah. this idea. And that like it, this this is one of the classic things. There's a great book on capitalism by a guy called Andrew Schoenfeld, which I read back in the seventies when I was doing my undergraduate years. And it's, I've forgotten his actual title, but he talked about flavors of capitalism, and he compared. The nature of capitalism in somewhere like America to the nature of capitalism in Scandinavia and so on, and said.
said how the, the different acceptance of roles of different parts of society created those different cultures. So in Germany, for example, every company has its commercial board as, as usual, but there's also a thing called an Orthostrut, if I've got the pronunciation right, almost certainly I haven't, which is a parallel board involving union representatives and community representatives. And so the firm is making those decisions with a wider constituency than just the let's make a maximum profit mentality of the American firms. Mm. And that gave you the German culture which is very different to the American culture. When we started to see inflation rising, the central banks around the world were all saying, oh, this is transitory. You know, this is, there's a lack of, there's a lack of supply mm. because of the war and because of supply chains disrupted by the pandemic mm. uh, and there's this, this cash available in people's bank accounts. That'll mm. sort itself out as those supply chains sort themselves out. Uh, and people spend that cash as well, presumably, and so we, uh, and then things will return to normal. They abandoned that, but they were right, weren't they? Pretty much. I mean, the, the, the transient, it's not just transient because we're going to see the impact of uh, global warming in general and our productive capabilities and, mm. and, and the need to relocate production because of it as well. But yes, the, the, there were transient elements to it, and the people who argue the transient case are correct, but a lot of this has been driven by increases in energy costs and increases in food costs. Yeah. Now we're going to see much more of that over well, time. Well, I mean, food is the the one thing that is uh, that is staying up there as every you know other costs are coming down. So energy has come down, but food is staying up there. So mm. we've got other uh, places in the world like uh, President Erdogan in Turkey, who is not following the the party line, and the Bank of Japan as well. I want to I want to talk about them mm. uh, when we come back. It is the Debunking Economics podcast. We are asking the question: Have central banks? Got it all wrong. Are they heading for a fall? It's going to be interesting to watch them the, the, watch the reversal. But somehow, I think they'll they'll deny it's a reversal. They'll find a way of mm. arguing their way through it. We'll look at all of that when we come back in just a second. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff: shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. So st we are looking at central banks. Are they heading for a fall later this year? Are we going to realize that the approach that they've taken is not working? We saw that, you know, that despite their attempts to try and reduce the numbers of jobs in the United States, those jobs are holding up pretty much the same around the world. But we are seeing some costs going down because they were transitory. So energy prices are starting to fall this year. Uh, and uh, and wages, you know, that big fear about this wage spiral is just not happening. But I tell you what is happening. Because wages, because interest rates are going up, 
uh, the cost of our mortgage is going up. Therefore, the cost of people who are renting is going up. And interestingly, that is one constituent part of the basket of uh, of elements that makes up CPI. So central banks are actually helping to push up interest rates, uh, inflation, aren't they? Yeah, they're adding to the costs. And I mean, the, the whole interest rate um, argument has got all sorts of uh, complexities to it. But fundamentally, for financial corporations, interest is a cost of doing business. Mm. And if interest rates are high, they've got higher costs and they'll pass it on. Yeah. And so I've had a disaster in the housing sector for the last 40 years. I mean, a complete failure to provide housing at the level that's needed for actual um, the service of being inside a house. It's all become a speculative bubble. And as Keynes once said, when the, uh, when the uh, management of your economy is the byproduct of the activities of a casino, the job is likely to be all done. But we've certainly seen that happening. So we've got housing shortages coming out of this huge increase in housing prices, mm. which supposedly going to encourage many more houses to be built. Well, that hasn't happened. Um, but it so, means yeah. as well people are spending more on a mortgage. They're spending less yeah. on goods and services outside the housing. <laughs> And this is, this is what is often shown as savings, too, because the way savings are defined is the gap between income and consumption, where consumption does not include your expenditure on finan- your financial commitments. Mm. So if people are supposed to be saving the gap, no, in fact, most of it's going to paying the mortgage. All well, uh, right. We have far too much. We yeah, have yeah. far too much of a, we've got far too big a financial sector. And as I've said many times, we need to get back to the banking the way it was when my father was a banker. And he told me this line, and he was actually a damn good golfer as well. He said the uh, banking was supposed to be a 363 business. Borrow at three. There's a bit of a fiction about that. But then we borrow at three, lend at six, and be on the golf course by 3 p.m. Now, that's a useful banker. <laughs> when they think they run the society, then you've got the sort of complications and crises we're getting ourselves into now. So the solution, as Marx once said too, is to get rid of the is to bring the roving cavaliers of credit back to heel, reduce their power. But everything that's done by mainstream economics and everything done by conventional economists ends up strengthening the financial sector, giving them more power. That's well, our mistake. Not the workers. Stop screwing the unions. Start screwing the financial sector instead. It is these unelected representatives, isn't it, central mm. banks that really are controlling the economy. I mean, the government is just a side act right now. So also, I mean, if you if if their aim is, and we've we've shown that it's not working anyway, even if if even if they even even if their theory was right, if the aim is to cut employment, then you're going to cut production because those people were doing stuff, something mm-hmm. constructive, you assume. Uh, we still know if you've got a situation where people have got money saved, even though some of it might actually be on a mortgage, a lot mm-hmm. of it. So you're going to cut supply, but you're not going to cut demand. So that's going to make inflation worse as well. <laughs> I mean, at every angle you look at it, this isn't this doesn't stack up, does it? Yeah. I mean, it's it's um, there's some parts of the inflation you can't get rid of. So the uh, the inflation caused by declining productivity, mm. which is something which comes out of things like COVID and the and the uh, and the uh, Ukraine war and so on, uh, and also inflation which will come out of relocating production, which will be forced to because the, the supply chains are just too long and too fragile. That sort of inflation you can't. There's no, no policy to get away from it. You simply have to ensure that the inflation doesn't undermine the 
stability of your society, which means you have to give people money so that you don't freeze to death overnight because when granny freezes, the, the son and the, and the uh, daughters will go out and demonstrate and break your yeah, society Yeah, they tend down. to get very upset by that sort of thing, yeah, don't yeah, they? Yeah, I would yeah. have gotten to what they'd worry about granny freezing to death. I mean, See, yeah, I, this, this, this is, it's, it's, again, we're dancing around the, the main issue which is the distribution of income. Mm. And it is so unfair that the people at the bottom of the hierarchy can't afford to keep themselves warm with the current prices. So you're going to get a revolt from the bottom up, and that's what gives you a breakdown in society. You've got to avoid that situation. Central banks are contributing to it. So the one thing, so I mean, inflation is coming down, the constituent part. So energy, which did peak at the start of the war, has started to come down quite an amount mm. um, by and large. The one sticky thing is food mm. and that's got that i mean in part the war will be responsible for that mm. uh, and i think in the uk as well the the added problem that we just are not importing people who used to pick stuff hence mm. you know my conversation uh, the other about week rhubarb. about how much rhubarb mm. costs mm. Uh, so i mean so food costs are being pushed because of the cost of labor to pick it or the technology or or for for whatever reason but i mean that that is hitting the poorer people the worst because they're spending mm. a higher proportion of their their income on on food. Yeah. So to hit to sort of double hit them and say, by the way, we're going to push your mortgage up as well. So yeah, we're no, going to make life completely. Wages for yeah, because exactly. Yeah, until your wages go down, we're going to mm. keep seeing food increase, and we're going to push your mortgage up. Mm. Um, and your rent. Yeah. So uh, so the. And how are they getting away with this? I mean, it's just not, like... Not but, well. It, it, and, and governments are sitting on the one side going, oh, well, that's what they're there to do. This is uh, this is their job. We'll leave them to it. Well, I mean, my my feeling is particularly with, with food and energy, we're going to see those becoming less available and more expensive as global warming really starts to hit. Mm. And in that situation, if you force people to be paying through the price system, which necessarily involves the distribution of income as well, then the bottom fraction of your population, and in the UK, 24% is a good estimate, will be unable to pay those prices. So do you subsidise food? You'll have to subsidise food. You'll have to ration. Well, At some point, we're going to be pushed into rationing. If you subsidise food, that's going to get inflation down. Problem solved. <laughs> the, measured, the measured rate will fall because you'll be getting as a, a food coupon rather than paying the price for it. But it's it's a sign of the, 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 the dilemmas we've been driven into by a fallacious theory of how the economy operates and how it interacts with the ecology as well. Mm. So th- this is all stuff, you know, you're, you're approaching a terminal breakdown. In, you know, I'm, I'm now I've got a I'm ending up in the derma category. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, we're, so. we're going into climate change. Let's yeah. let's let's avoid doing that there, okay. just for now because mm. I want to talk about uh, two central banks. Yeah. So uh, President Erdogan of Turkey is being lambasted for his belief that higher interest rates make inflation worse, which is <clears> actually <throat> just what we've been talking about. So he's getting his central bank to lower interest rates. Mind you, they were almost at twenty percent. Mm. I mean, the interest rates were staggering. It's now down to fourteen percent. But inflation last October, and this is where people will go. Listen to these two guys talking about how central banks are doing stuff yeah. wrong. We just need to look at Turkey because their inflation got up to eighty-five percent last year. It's yeah. down to sixty-four percent in December. 
it's expected or hoped it's going to get down to 42% this year. I don't know when you're dealing with such staggeringly high numbers. You could be as yeah. precise as to say 42% rather than 40%. But that's what they're asking. So two questions. Why is inflation so high in Turkey? And um, I, Honestly, I'm going to say I'll be talking through my head if I try to answer the question properly. Uh, I'm full of more confident talking about Japan's situation. But is, but is his rationale right, though? If it, it's just interest, interest rates, uh, this is where, where governments... Uh, government spending comes in. The government's paying the interest rate and it's paying it in its own currency. Then that interest rate ends up as being an income for the people who own the bonds, which that country has. So if you're putting up the interest rates, you're putting up the payment you're making to people who own the bonds. Now, the value of the bonds will fall because of the high interest rate. There's the inverse value in terms of the value of the asset. But in terms of the cash flow from the bonds, uh, by putting up the interest rate, uh, you're getting a very high rate of return on that investment if you're buying new bonds. Not if existing bonds, your value has gone down, but buying the bonds now becomes attractive for the high rate of interest. And the government is creating that money. So the government money is turning up in the financial sector, mm. not where I'd want it to turn up, but it adds to demand in the economy. It adds to the income of the financial sector. So it's a transfer from the government to the financial sector. But it's not a transfer from the government to the public sector. To the public in general. No, yeah. the public misses out on that. Mm, so, I would um, to say. Yeah. And what actually happens is with those high, with the high interest rates, uh, for the, that then means people who've got to take out debt from private ba- banks are paying maybe 3% more than that, can't afford it, so you get a crash in the private sector. Asset values fall. People's you know, the, the value of housing will fall. Your willingness to build a house will also fall. So the supply of housing is going to fall, and that's going to squeeze people who are renting. So it ends up being a horrific mess. Mm. Uh, but fundamentally, government interest is a form of income for people who own government bonds, and the income is created by the government itself. So rather than that re- reducing demanded. It's the impact it has through the private financial sector that damages people, not the impact of the bonds itself. It actually increases the amount of money in the economy in the hands of those who own bonds. So for whatever the reason that they got inflation up to such a horrendous level... Mm. Maybe uh, like a collapsing currency, most likely, yeah. because of a huge trade deficit. Yeah. And, and fixing it with interest rates, I mean, it would just be if you if you were following that theory. It yeah, would, I well, mean, that's one reason though. They'll say that the inter- the, the the one part of MMT I disagree with is the arguments about the uh, imports versus exports. Yeah. If you're running a trade surplus, you're well and truly insulated from these problems, and that's where Japan comes in. Right. Because Japan doesn't have uh, it, it. It doesn't have to. It's not having to sell Japanese goods to get American dollars to cover a deficit. It's getting American dollars from a surplus. Yeah, less so than it used to, of course. Huh? But less so less than it used to, to, but still an incredible surplus, yeah. Well, we need to talk about that uh, that, that element of MMT in a, in a future edition. We should get one of the uh, one of the supporters, you know, l- go head to head and sort that out. Somebody, one of our listeners, said, "Yeah, for God's sake, sort that out." <laughs> that disagreement over uh, whether it's good to have a I'll trade just deficit or the not. The model, the whole thing, which I've been avoiding because of lack of time. But yeah, we'll have to actually model it properly. All right. So the Bank of Japan, they are not lifting interest rates. It's trying to control its yield curve. So they have this idea again that uh, inflation is transitory. Uh, like all central banks used to believe, they don't want to push up interest rates, so they keep bond yields down mm. by the central bank 
buying, buying them. the bonds. Yeah. So they're trying to keep short-term interest rates at minus 0.1% and 10-year yields below 0.5%. Have a look at them today. They'll be just below 0.5% because they'll keep on buying them till that's the number, damn mm. it. So how realistic an approach is that? I mean, the danger is, of course, that at some point, and I think by June, they will have bought all the bonds. <laughs> <laughs> not sure what they do then. So how realistic is that approach? Is that well, a that, better that, way? That, that, is, that is a realistic approach because what it's saying is the, the base interest rate is, 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 a, is a policy decision by the central bank. Yeah. The whole idea, I mean, the, again, neoclassical pinky waxes, the, 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 the Marshall, Marshall scissors. If ever there was a bad a bad meme, that's the worst meme in history, Marshall scissors. And people imagine there's a supply and demand curve which are independent of each other and uh, if you increase if you increase the supply, then the price has to fall, that sort of thinking. Um, in the case of, of there is there is no independent supply and demand for, for monetary factors. So the government creates the additional money and then sells bonds to, to back it, the central bank has got an infinite capacity to buy those bonds. Mm. So it's quite, even though the government, most governments have rules that say that the treasury can't sell bonds directly to the central bank. It's just, it means rather than a one step, you do a two step. The government sells the bonds to private banks. The private banks can buy the bonds because the deficit the government ran created the reserves that are used to buy the bonds anyway. And then the central bank comes and says, we'll buy those bonds off you, recreates the reserves once more. Yeah. Just as an asset swap, they, the assets of the central bank rise because they've bought the bonds. Their liabilities rise because reserves have risen. It all works out perfectly. So whether it's one, whether it's one step or two step, I mean, uh, yeah. basically any new issued debt of those, particularly those uh, mm. at that ten-year uh, level duration, is all being bought by the Bank of Japan now. And what that means is you've got a fiat economy. A fiat money economy. Whereas the reason Japan had its crisis back in the 1990s is it went for being a, a credit-based economy. It had a huge bubble in private debt. Uh, the, the first private uh, debt bubble bursting was Japan in 1990. Debt peaked sometime later as a percentage of GDP, I think, at 225%. It's now at about 170. But in the process of directing it indirectly by uh, by the central bank buying the bonds, you now have government debt being what about 250% of GDP in Japan. Private debt is lower than 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 uh, government debt in Japan and most of the rest of the world. It's the other way around. But by doing this, which is effectively harnessing MMT, the understanding because mm. MMT is its level is basically a description of the financial structure of the economy. Uh, they can keep on doing it indefinitely, and the interest rate as you say, in Japan, can be way below the rate of inflation uh, because it's just set by the government decisions, central so, bank decisions. Right. and But they, they won't be doing anything to hold inflation down, though, will they? I mean, this is this is based on the assumption that inflation is just going to come down of its own accord, which, yeah. which is not an issue for – hasn't been an issue for Japan, but it is actually creeping up. That's the, that's the other dynamic in Japan. Mm. Japan has been a low inflation. Actually, had a real problem with – negative inflation, deflation for a long yeah. time. Mm. But now it is getting up to levels that would be a concern, like 3 or 4%, I think it's getting up to now. So there's this starting to be a concern. I'm not mm. quite sure how they're going to tackle that. Well, again, that probably reflects more about the impact of COVID and the impact on supply chains and energy prices. Mm. Um, and that, you know, the energy, I mean, the, the COVID um, will not disappear. We're stuck with it. 
but it isn't having the same impact upon productive systems as it had initially. Uh, the war is still there. That's causing more expensive grain. If you're importing those goods, then you're importing the price effect coming from overseas. You're not going to do anything about that either with the interest rate. So they're minimising the disruption to their economy from factors they can't control. So... Markets are expecting in most places that central banks are going to start dropping interest rates later this year because inflation is falling away. Now, you mm. could say that, you know, well, of course, inflation will fall away because of base effects. Unless you expect that prices are going to keep on increasing on the increases we saw last year, mm. then the rate of the growth of inflation is going to fall mm. because of those base effects. But the banks, of course, will be able to say, wow, well, that is because of us, because of what we've done. Uh, nobody is going to be any the wiser, are they? We're going to come out the other side of this, and nobody is quite sure what the impact of central bank policies have been. Yeah, they'll except, get away with it. And this, yeah, but that was my point. And yeah. this, this is the, the problem um, that economics in general has, that when you have a, a anomaly in physics where there's something where your theory predicts one thing and reality gives you something else, then that anomaly exists indefinitely it never goes away and it can easily be reproduced by new scientists and they can say well, we've got to change our theory because this the existing paradigm doesn't fit this particular anomaly we need a new paradigm economics they can go through they can just sail through the whole damn thing you get a new crisis different to the previous crisis and the same old nonsense goes on and economics doesn't reform itself so the uk's growth rate is just dire right now it's mm. going to uh, we are i think the only country in the g7 that is not back to pre-COVID levels. Mm. By the Bank of England's own forecast, I think it's going to take until uh, 2026 before we are back to where we were in terms of uh, pre-COVID GDP. So how much of that is the result of the actions of the central bank, of the Bank of England? I think it's more just the overall industrial policy philosophy of the UK for the last 40 or 50 years, you've been de-industrialising and believing you can replace manufacturing with services. Mm. Now, the reality is the only services that really are on that scale are selling financial. debt to each other. Yeah, financial okay. sense, yeah. And then and that you... Funny reach... enough, we're not a restaurant-based uh, recovery. No, 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 no. Or a massage-based <laughs> recovery, whatever else. But, but what, what you've had is that you can't... The, the services will not replace the manufacturing sector. Mm. Yeah. Manufacturing is the foundation of a capitalist economy, and you've undermined that foundation. Yeah. So it's more that, I think, than what the central bank is doing. That's why Britain's performance is so bad. Yeah. Well, a massage it could see things pick up, but um, not, in oh, way, please. Not, 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 not in the way that you're envisaging. So <laughs> there we are. That was a low point from Dolly, not from me, I might add. Okay? <laughs> you could see it coming, though, couldn't I you? I could, so it's hard, oh, please. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Uh, incidentally, on wage inflation, if it's such a concern for the Bank of England, I wonder why they uh, they paid uh, twenty three million in staff bonuses last year, according to the Observer. You would have thought, if they were really concerned about wage inflation, they might actually not pay themselves bonuses that year, wouldn't you? It's inside the Bank of England itself paying bonuses, yeah, and salaries to themselves. They yeah, pay yeah. bonuses internally. Yeah, the whole bonus philosophy. I mean, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, with one of the most, I think I've told you a few times, one of the most um, illuminating experiences for me from my arrival in England was meeting up with a, a fellow Twitterer and his wife being introduced to me. I didn't know her at all and she then explained she used to work in the finance sector and said she became a school teacher to get away from the stress of the finance sector, at which point I burst out laughing and she agreed with me. The stress was just as bad, but at least she believed in what she was doing. Yes. But she still got her first salary check 
uh, from the bank and, and from the from the school teaching, and she said not including my bonus. Um, the salary I got in, in finance in, in the teaching was one thirtieth what I got in finance, Jeez. and her bonus was bigger. So her bonus was seven hundred and fifty thousand pounds. Now the whole philosophy you give a bonus to these people. This comes back to Marx's wonderful kind about the roving cavaliers of credit. Yeah, they get enormous power to distort the whole thing. And it, you well, I can understand build why. itself on that. I can understand why you'd be giving bonuses to the Bank of England because they've done such a terrific job. Uh, because uh, sooner or later we will get back to uh, the the level of output that we were before the pandemic hit. Uh, even though every other nation in the G seven is already there, mm. uh, so I can understand the the basis for their bonus. Yeah. He said, giving a quizzical look, which doesn't come across. No, the radio well doesn't podcast. do well for the quizzical. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, that's it for this week. I'll leave it there. Good to talk, Steve. Okay, mate. Bye. The Debunking Economics Podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.